Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Cass Koshal's story is nothing short of remarkable. Having your dream career cruelly cut short, undergoing multiple surgeries, learning to walk again not once but twice, and tragically losing the love of your life would derail a lot of people. Not Kath. She defied the odds and bounced back more than once and has made it her mission through her not-for-profit organisation Kindness Factory to make the world a better place through kindness, one small act at a time. This episode contains mention of suicide, which some listeners may find disturbing. If you or someone you know needs someone to talk to, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. So, Kath, are you like the nicest person in the world? No, not by any stretch of the imagination. I don't believe you. <laughs> I like to think I'm a good person. Uh, nice, I don't know if it's the right word, but I like to connect with people, I think probably would be the, the right way to describe me, but I'm genuinely interested in people as well. I think everyone's got a story to tell, but am I the world's nicest person? No, I think that's a pretty big... I've met some really nice people that I reckon would trump me, but... I'm not so sure, given what you've done. Let's roll things back a little bit. You grow up in New South Wales. You are a cricket tragic and an outstanding young cricketer, making massive headway, uh, leaps and bounds in your sporting career. Then you develop some back pain. Then what happened? Life changed in a really big way and really unexpectedly. So to paint a, a bit of a picture, I'd been, I guess, suffering some prolonged back issues and then I started experiencing symptoms in one of my, my legs, so my left leg, um, started in the big toe, couldn't feel it, thought I should probably get this checked out. So I did. I went to see the physio at Cricket New South Wales and she immediately got me scanned up. We realised there was a bit of a prolapsed disc at the L5-S1 and then it just all went downhill from there. So it was lots of different cortisone injections to try and rectify the problem until ultimately my back just broke, um, which is sort of unheard of. For someone so young? 23. At such a young age to suffer irreparable sort of damage to my spine and spinal cord was a big blow. But I always held on to a little bit of hope that I'd be able to, I guess, rehab my way back to health and ultimately I wanted to get back on the park and I think I actually genuinely believed that I would at that point in time as well. Well, ambitions for athletes, if they're grand, means they're not given up easily and you had achieved quite a lot already. What was it like to feel as if your dreams had been shattered in an instant? It's tough. So as an athlete, I wasn't a naturally gifted, skillful actor. I was definitely not Elise Perry or Elisa Healy. Wasn't even close to those. Hang abilities. on, you picked for under-14's emerging blue side, first trip to the SCG, first professional contract in England at 19 for two years. What do you mean you weren't a gifted athlete? Um, I'm not really sure. I was okay enough to be at that level, obviously, because I got picked and you don't get picked just because you're a good person at those levels. But I was someone who worked goddamn hard at my trade. So for what I lacked in 
in skill or natural skill I made up with grit and determination and just a never say die attitude. I'm one of four kids. I've got three older brothers. I think that's where that came in instinctually. I was always the little guy or the little girl um, who shouldn't have been playing cricket but wanted to anyway. So for me, it was always a little bit of fight life. So I would describe my life now as a 32 year old as one big good and bad accident. And I guess for me, I've always found my way. I've always been able to bounce back and, and have that nine lives sort of a, as a cat does, I suppose. But again, what I lacked in that, that skill and that ability I made up for with that hard work and that work ethic that I had. I think my parents instilled in me as well um, from a really young age. So mum and dad, um, my grandparents are from a really small country town. So I had those country town living values instilled in a young age. And I think that helped a lot with my career. So to, to have lost it after the the hard work that I'd put in. It was tough because all I ever cared about as a 23-year-old was cricket. I hadn't really ever had a boyfriend. You were focused. I was so focused on that bat and that ball and that's all I cared about. And the only thing that I ever wanted was to play for Australia, to make it to that level and to get paid to do that. So to come so close, again, even from an era perspective as where the, the game has now evolved for women's cricketers is huge. So I only just missed out, which is a bit of a bugger, but that's life as well. And I actually wouldn't change my life now for anything. What is it about cricket that you loved. For me, when I stepped out onto that field, nothing else ever mattered. And I just loved it. I really don't know. I think cricket is such a sport where it's obviously a team sport. You're playing with 11 other people at any given time and against 11 other people. So there's a lot of people that are around you, but the results can rest on one person. So there's a lot of internal pressure. There's a lot of team pressure, but you never feel alone either. So you've always got 11 best mates beside you to celebrate the individual achievement, but then as a whole, the team one as well. And I think that's something that I, I miss still to this day is the, the, the team teammates that you're always surrounded by when you're playing cricket. It must bring a lot of joy right now to see the Southern Stars doing so well. Bittersweet for you? No, I just love it. So when I became injured, Cricket New South Wales threw me a lifeline. I became a sports administrator for six years. I now don't do that, but um, still sort of consult on culture and everything else like that. The work that I'm doing now with kindness has sort of come, I guess, 180 and it's now embedding itself back into the cricket system. So I'll be speaking to the, the men's and women's Queensland size as well as the WACA as well. So for me, it's still great to be involved in some way, shape or form. But to see what the Southern Stars are doing, they deserve everything that they get, those girls. They work goddamn hard at everything that they do. Um, and it's so wonderful that you can look on a weekend at the local park, you can walk past and there'll be equal, sometimes equal amounts of women or girls playing the game as boys. So for me, I was the only girl in my team for, oh, it would have been a good eight years. And women's cricketers were just something that you never saw in the media. So there was never really anyone to aspire to. My heroes growing up were Ricky, Ricky Ponting, Ponting. Yeah. Um, Adam Gilchrist. Love those guys. And I didn't have a figurehead as a woman to see. And now I can see why Elise Perry and Elisa Healy and Meg Lanning and the rest of them are just something to aspire to for little girls all around the country. And it's absolutely beautiful to watch, but no bittersweet feelings for me at all. I find your story just extraordinary. We're here to talk about the Kindness Factory, but you wouldn't have got to the Kindness Factory if you hadn't gone through what you've gone through. And no one would really appreciate it, I think, until they hear it from you. So we have the back breakdown, you're in hospital, you're going through rehab, and then what happens? 
So I suppose I spent, I guess, six weeks after the first initial break, sort of wondering if I would ever walk in, had no feeling below the waist. One doctor suggested that it was a very new age surgery. It's a little bit more mainstream at the moment. The only practitioner that did it in this country was called Matthew Scott Young. He's based in Narang in the Gold Coast and it's called a total disc replacement. So rather than the historical fusion surgery where they sort of cage you back up, you get very lim- limited movement, he has a different approach. So you sort of, it's very graphic, but you cut through the stomach, you shift the internal organs aside, you act the spine that way. So for me, I had a fragmented vertebrae at the L5-S1. So he encased that with the titanium reinforcement, put the ball and socket joint in there. So as an athlete and as a very young person to have faced an injury of that magnitude that I'd have the the movement and the free-flowing ability to do what I needed to do with that mobility. So that was the suggested course of action if I wanted to potentially walk again. So of course, I took that chance. And at that stage of life, you're in your early 20s, you're still dreaming of being a competitive cricketer and this is nothing but a minor setback. However, you are in hospital for a prolonged period of time. Yeah, so it was a big one. So I flew to the Gold Coast, had the surgery. You lay there for two weeks in traction and all sorts of head noise starts to creep in. Was this worth it? I'm in a lot of pain. My stomach's just been torn apart. Will I take those steps? Will I get that mobility back like they've suggested I may? This is the last chance that I had at this. So really tough. But two weeks later, I did. I got out of bed with the help of my physio, doctors, the practitioners. I took my first steps, which was amazing. I couldn't feel anything below the waist still at that point, especially and certainly in my left leg more so than my right. But very hopeful at that point of, I guess, if I had a set path and I'm very sometimes driven by numbers and papers and things like that but if I had a path I followed that path whatever was prescribed to me. So you're quite goal oriented? I guess so yeah I think um, well one thing I did this year even from a business standpoint was write down 10 goals and they've all started to come true which is amazing and I don't think it's that I'd never had those goals before it's just that I went through the process of actually writing them down and now they're coming to fruition. But when you're in rehab your goal is to improve become competitive again you meet someone pretty wonderful. You meet Jim. Yeah, I do. So I guess to progress the narrative, I spent uh, six weeks in the Gold Coast recovering, returned home to Sydney. Recovery seemed to be going really, really well. And again, the the dream of still playing cricket was still fresh and very much available to me at that point in time and and attainable and reachable. A series of complications. I woke up one morning to cut a really long story short, woke up at 5am, looked down at my leg and it's completely blue. I was like, oh my God, what's going on here? So I went to hospital, ultimately see the news that they were going to amputate my leg, which was really hard to hear. We had a little bit of a fight for the next two weeks ultimately of trying to keep the leg and it was found that I'd been bleeding internally from the surgery. The surgeon had very slightly nicked the femoral artery that ran into my leg which is why it went blue and I became at high risk of having my leg amputated. So it came very close to that. It was, I think it was about three hours away from having it amputated. Fortunately they found it and that's when the course of rehab was like okay Kath this isn't about cricket anymore, it's about quality of life. Not only are you at risk of still having an amputated, it's still not out of the woods, if you ever want the chance at potentially walking again, so life without a wheelchair, that kind of thing, off to rehab you go. So quit your job, pack up your life. Inpatient time for you, six to 12 months would be what we'd recommend. No one can really tell with this kind of stuff, so it's up to you and how you apply yourself in the rehab environment. How old are you at this time? Still 23 at this point in time. So. Wow. Um, I refer to rehab experience as just a really tough one. You're the queen of understatement. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, I mean, the first week I was put in the geriatric ward because there was no availability in the, in the neuro ward that I was supposed to be in. So the group therapy to this looked like there was three categories, the over 65s, 75s and 85s. 
And then there was you. And then there was me at 23. So they put me in the over 85s category and uh, I won the calf race competition every day. So <laughs> they, there, was, there was not all, all downers. But apart from befriending the elderly, I really didn't know who to turn to or what to do in that rehab environment. Or I'll never forget calling my best friend saying, I'm really struggling here. I really don't know how I'm going to do this. I could hardly get through the first week. How on earth am I going to manage the next six to 12 months? I'll never forget the tough love that she gave me. And it's one thing that I sort of still preach, um, that we have this genuine desire to help people is one thing, yet the single notion of someone believing in you can mean so much. And sometimes that's all we need when we're feeling at rock bottom is someone to say, I've got your back. I can't do this for you, but I know that you can. I've seen you do things like this before. And it's all I needed to hear, I guess, to then commit myself to the process ultimately of, of learning how to walk again and keep my leg healthy and out of the woods, I guess. But as you alluded to, my, my rehab journey changed in a really good way. Um, it was about three weeks into my stay when I met a fellow patient by the name of Jim. What was Jim in there for? He was a rugby league player? Was. So he hadn't actually injured his spine playing rugby. It was the Tough Mudder obstacle race of all things. So he shouldn't have probably been doing it considering his sport, but uh, was on the sort of, I really don't know that much about it, but the monkey bar challenge. Someone had gone too early, mm-hmm. pushed into his back. He'd then fallen from a height, landed on the ground in a pretty heavy way um, and fractured a couple of his vertebrae as well. He was 25, I was 23, um, we're facing very similar challenges at the same age. I guess when you've got best friends named Daisy who's 85 who has dementia, um, <laughs> it's a really refreshing thing to have someone of like mind being athletic but also someone of similar age and someone who was just ultimately, uh, I guess, the love of my life. So, I mean, who's lucky enough to find love in a rehab centre, right? So for me, it was, I guess, misfortune that met a lot of fortune. I just loved him. We started off as friends and quickly just turned into love, which was absolutely phenomenal. So it was a beautiful love story that went on for nearly... 12 months. We were just like normal young kids. We really were, except our environment was so different to anyone else's. So instead of long walks on the beach, it was wheelchair races in the corridor and having jokes and fun and poking fun at our environment. But I guess ultimately being confined to four white walls like rehab centres are, they're a really tough place to be. But we made plans, like I guess for us being confined to that environment, it was more about what are we going to dream up outside of this environment so that this becomes a more pleasant experience or one that we can grind our way through, look back on and go, I'm so glad that we met there. Here's our life now and let's look back with it, like immense gratitude, pride that we got through that experience and hope, I guess, for the future as well. So plans were four kids, it'd be three boys and a girl, just like my family. It would be a house in Broadwater in the Gold Coast, pet turtles, a dog named Saf. And we just dreamt often and like neither of us ever, ever had before. So I guess it was a really joyous time. It was. And it sounds like that's hard to believe, right? To feel lucky when you're in a rehab environment is not a normal thing because they're really just not a pleasant place to be. But love is a sweet spot. It is. It's the most powerful drug, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that's, yeah. So it's, it was absolutely beautiful. But ultimately, after us going out for 12 months, it just wasn't to be. And what do you mean by that? What happened? Well, I'd, I'd progressed my journey. Uh, it was about eight months that I stayed as an inpatient there. And I'd progressed to be considered what's called an outpatient. So I'd go there three mornings a week. I would get my checkup done, continue the course of rehab, and then I'd be able to go home or go to work, whatever I was doing. So I was sort of had a, a bit of a like a transition into work period. So I'd gone back to Cricket New South Wales, was working a little bit there at that point in time. And what about Jim? He was still full-time? He was still full-time on the 13th of November. He was due to be discharged on the 14th. We'd got the lease on the house and the dream was about to begin that very next day. And um, tragically and very heartbreakingly and very unexpectedly, he, he took his own life the night before his full-time release. Wow. So just crushed me beyond belief. You never saw it coming. Not one of us. Just completely inexplicable. I sort of say to a lot of people now that 
if I can look back on that time, time completely changed for me that day. So, you know, when you're having a bad day and the traffic's bad and the dishes are there and your kids are doing this and your colleagues are not being very good and all that, I was praying for those days. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I guess the unexpected nature of it. If anything, Jim was the guy that was never going to be that guy. He was the one that gave everyone else the hope. He was the one that gave you a high five in the corridor, treated the cleaner the same way that he did the CEO and just made everyone feel welcome. It's, it's tough, right? To lose anyone in any way is going to be a tough experience, especially when you love them with all of your heart. To lose them to suicide, I guess there's an added element of grief that comes with that and it's a, I think they call it complicated grief. And you found him. I did, yeah, which was um, led to a lot of mental ill health of my own. So I suffered a complete emotional breakdown about 10 months after his passing. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and complicated grief on top of that, which was a tough experience. So I guess to shockingly to find someone in that way, you never really lose the visual of that, um, not to get too graphic again. But for me, I, it wasn't even about that. It was more the what did I do or what did I not see or how did I not make him feel comfortable enough to share what was going on in his mind? And that was tough. Yeah, it really was. And then I realised, do you know what? It's got absolutely nothing to do with me and there is absolutely no judgement surrounding this. Um, What was going on for Jim obviously was internal and it was not something that he wanted to share with anyone. I'll never stop loving him. I never have stopped loving him. I'll always love him for who he was and who he could have been as well. And what he did is actually none of my business. I loved him with all of my heart. He was a very authentic character who had great values. Him and his mum, his mum and I were very close. She was Mm. like a second mother to me. You loved him, you loved his family. I did, yeah. He was an only child. His dad wasn't around, but he was definitely a mama's boy. So wherever we were, she was. So it was tough. And I think even during that 10-month period where I sort of neglected, I guess, my own mental health and completely just tried to shut that out from the world, I sort of neglected her as well. So I was just like, whatever reminder there is of him at the moment, I can't face. I can't deal with this until it sort of all hit rock bottom and really hit me um, quite hard. That was a tough experience hitting rock bottom, but as I think it was like J.K. Rowling says, it was the foundation for, for going up again as well. So I think sometimes we have to break before we can move on. Break again, you're the queen of understatement. You would have felt physically broken once with your back and going through rehab, sporting greatness, those dreams are shattered. Then you fall in love and then, you know, you have dreams of marriage and and a happy ever after and then those dreams are shattered. How do you pick yourself up from that? It's hard to imagine how you actually get out of bed every day. So what happened was it was a routine checkup with my, my leg. I had to go back to rehab. I walked past his room and it just hit me. I had to be sedated. It was a really ugly experience. I woke up from that. Some people may drink and all that kind of stuff and you regret some things. You do some silly things when you drink too much. You wake up with a hangover. You're like, oh, my God, what did I do? Who do I have to apologise to? It was a little bit like that but with a deep-rooted shame and hurt attached to it and I remember the doctors and all the specialists sort of saying Kath like how are you and I was like I'm okay what what on earth has happened to you but remembered most of it and I, all they kept saying to me was Kath I just need you to know that this is completely normal what you've been through is very not normal and I couldn't rationalize that and I thought do you know what if this is normal and this is how I'm going to feel for the immediate future for the rest of my life I don't know what you're saying I can't be normal because I don't want to feel this bad So I basically regathered myself. I went straight to the airport, booked a ticket to the Gold Coast where Jim's mum was from, and I just went there. I didn't tell anyone where I was going. I had the clothes on my back with a backpack, some socks in my bag or something like that. Got there and then spent the next three weeks really trying to find myself. And a pivotal moment within that was about halfway between, I guess, getting there and and coming back home. And I was sat at the coffee table. There was a pen and an empty piece of paper. To this day, I still have no idea why I did it, but I'm so glad that I did. I picked up the pen and I started writing down a list of 
of names. And for the next three hours, I went through the process of calling every single person on that list. And they were just a list of names of people who had, I guess, certainly helped me in the last sort of two-year period from the back break and then losing Jim. But then also, I guess, people who had ever had influence in my life that I really appreciated. And it was just this simple thing of expressing gratitude that we hear so often. But for me, it was so powerful and it was a pivotal moment in my life that actually turned it all around. And you took the time. I took the time. I remember sort of sitting on this rock, right, and I was like, oh, my God, where do I have to be? What do I need to do? And I was like, I don't have to be anywhere. I've like, I've, I've sort of had this mental breakdown. There was a lot of a stigma attached to it. And I'm like, she's a bit, she's gone off the rails. We'll just leave her alone for a bit. So I had no one calling me or anything else like that. And time was mine again. And it was a really refreshing thing. As a kid, you've always got homework or responsibilities and you're always getting told what to do. And you go to work or uni, the same thing. So for me, it was always school plus cricket plus training plus everything else. And I always had to be somewhere and time stopped. It just stood still at that moment. So it was a, it was a great three weeks to sort of really find myself after the experiences that I'd had. I didn't know what my future would look like, what it could look like. I mean, just because I had been an athlete didn't mean that I had to be one in the future. But I was really excited, I guess, for the first time. I, I mean, after going through this list of calling these people was amazing. Every single one of them picked up. They were all really beautiful. And it was the first time in that period that I was like, everything's going to be okay. It somehow recalibrated your inner core. It did. I think I'm, I'm maybe a bit different to people. I'm intrinsically driven by the support of other people. So no goals too big or unreachable so long as you have the people around you. I'm planning to swim the English Channel next year. And everyone's like, Kath, how do you know you're going to do it? I'm like, I don't. I'm going to give it a go if I fail. It's no real failure in it, right? But if I've got 10 people on this boat who are going to yell at me and not let me stop or they're going to throw food at me or whatever it is that they're going to do, then I'm not going to give up because they're invested in me as well. So that became a really important way, I guess, for me or a really important ingredient for me to practice as much resilience and to show as much resilience as I did, I guess, in that period. And for me, it was like, if you're ever struggling, you pick up the phone, you call the trusted people that you need to. And there've been a lot of bad days. Like a lot of people see Kindness Factory in this really positive light, which it is, and I have a great life. I love my life, but I also have bad days too. And I, I think it's understanding about knowing when to reach out for those people, understanding what fills your bucket as well. Kindness, I guess, started at that point, or Kindness Factory started at that moment. I returned home to Sydney and just started embarking on whatever it was that made me feel alive again. Kindness stood out because I guess the best way to, for me to articulate is when you're in a wheelchair and you can't move your legs and you go past a lift. You can't reach the button to press it and you're struggling and someone sees that stranger and they walk past without any sort of intention or anything else. Like they go, oh, I've got this. I can see that she's struggling. I'm going to press that button. They keep walking. They don't want thanks. They don't want any recognition. And you say it anyway. That stuff matters to people when they're in that vulnerable state. Those are the things that stood out for me when I reflected on my own journey. And so I just thought, you know what? My life has been saved by the kindness of people who care about me, yes, but also strangers. Those moments really stood out for me. So I was like, well, how do I give some of that back? So I just started doing things for other people, like raise money for kids in wheelchairs and dinners for the homeless. And I once bought randomly someone uh, a hairdresser on the street. I was just like, do you want to have dinner with me? I'm going to pay for it. He said, of course, why are you doing this? I said, I just feel like I need to or I want to. And that's what I started doing. And that's what I sort of started committing my life too and people just started taking notice and that's how it all began. It's a wonderfully contagious experience isn't it? It is right because you do it and initially the questions were like why are you doing this and I'm like it just makes me feel good that's so maybe it's even selfish I don't know but it's the only thing that makes me feel alive again so I accidentally again just ended up raising close to half a million dollars for a charity but I didn't intend to it was like let's just help this person in one small way I guess our philosophy is one small act can lead to a really big change and then accidentally we're close to half a million dollars that's raised for a charity organization um, in this true sense of community coming together 
And in this process, you've regained your health mentally and physically? Yeah, I guess the story continued. So with me sort of starting to, to do lots of different things for other people, a lot of people started taking notes. Why are you doing this? And had a lot of questions. And I guess grief and trauma and adversity don't equal kindness. So it couldn't make sense to a lot of people. And I couldn't ever articulate it. What really launched the Kindness Factory was I went back to rehab after doing a lot of charitable things and still doing a lot of deep soul searching. So I was probably 28 at the time and went back to rehab and I said, I think I'm going really, really well. They said, we agree. We're ready to discharge you for life. Would you like that? Absolutely. Yes. I really don't like coming here. I need it to be done because it's, I guess, still a little bit traumatic and emotional and everything else. I said, look, I really miss the competitive nature of playing sport. I miss cricket. I get that I can't play that anymore. Do you think there's anything else I could do? I said, yeah, we do. Your recovery was based in a pool and on a bike and in a run, you could be like a paratriathlete. Would you consider that? I'll give it a go. So I signed up for a tester, loved that. I was the first person with my disability to do a half Ironman, which is a pretty big deal. It was in the Sunshine Coast, September 2015. I did it with my brother. It was amazing. And I thought, okay, bucket list stuff. Let's just like really prove to yourself that you can do something if you set your mind to it. So I signed up for a full Ironman. So four kilometre swim, 180 kilometre bike ride, full marathon at the end. Crazy. Yeah. I just wanted to do one. It was never going to be a thing because it's like such a time commitment. I signed up for the 2016 Port Macquarie. Uh, It was due to be completed in May. One morning on the 10th of January 2016, I decided to go for a bike ride training with my two best friends. So I was riding from Alexandria in Sydney and I was going to go to Manly, have breakfast, come back. Uh, It would have been about a 90 kilometre round trip. Quiet Sunday morning. Quiet Sunday morning. Really nice day. Got to the north side of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I was about to turn right. Felt a thud on my body. Everything goes black and woke up a couple of days later to the news that I'd been hit by a four-wheel drive from behind. I broke my back again in four places this time. I shattered my left hip, I broke my right wrist and dislocated my neck. And then obviously, Kath, I'm really sorry to let you know, but you're paralysed and you'll never walk again for the second time in my life. Far out. So that was tough again. Like my, oh my goodness. Yeah, so big one, pretty severe injury. Spent six weeks there uh, in ICU, six months of rehab after that. I'm not advocating this, but surely being knocked out and unconscious for most of it, you would be grateful for. And I am glad for that. Mum and Dad went through a horrific time. I still, what I've put them through, not intentionally by any stretch, um, but what they've been through through being my parents is is horrific. It was a tough experience because a lot of people, again, my life was saved by kindness and I'll get to that and how that happened. But a lot of people were, were reaching out and everyone kept saying to me, Kath, you know how to do this. You've done it once before. So you're a seasoned vet. And I'm like, do you know what? I have done it before, but I understand how gruelling this process is. The first time when you're teaching yourself how to walk again, when everyone's telling you they won't, it's an un- known process. So you're flailing in the dark every day and you don't know what you're up against until you've done it. And you're like, God, that was tough. But okay, let's just go again tomorrow. Whereas the second time you're like, oh, I remember this stage. This is a really tough stage. Have I got it in me to do it today? And I guess like there was this expectation or weight of expectation that she's Wonder Woman or she's got this. And what if I don't this time? And Cass will be okay. But inside you've got that other person saying, I don't know if I can. It was a tough time for a lot of different reasons, but the most beautiful part about it all, and this is what really started the Kindness Factory movement, I guess, was a lot of people recognised that I was no longer in a position to be able to go out on the streets or do whatever it is that I was doing that a lot of people loved. So they would just start writing to me by email or text or social media or whatever it was, Cass, thanks for the inspiration. I'm really sorry to hear about the accident. However, because of you today, I mowed my neighbour's lawn or I donated blood or tied my sister's shoelace and all these acts of kindness started getting... I guess, submitted to me. And I was like, oh my God, what do I do with this information? This is beautiful. I can't lose this. And it made me feel incredible. 
So I just spoke to the website guy who put together pro bono for me in the first place. I said, what do I do with this information? We can't lose it. I need to capture it in some way, shape or form. And he said, let's just flip it. This isn't just your responsibility to make the world a kinder place. It's everyone else's. So we just set a goal, a million acts of kindness. You can submit it on the website. It's now gotten a lot bigger. So you can go onto social media, use our hashtag and it aggregates and sends it straight to like the portal, I guess, to try and achieve that mission and that goal. And it became this really big community thing, which was amazing. Um, And then I got really experiential with it. So I do a lot of motivational speaking. Now it's a story that everyone loves to hear. Six weeks in ICU recovering, six months of rehab, taught myself how to walk again for the third time in my life. And then really tough experience was facing the man that hit me with his car in court. So I get to court. It's a three-day process. There's lots of criminal charges on the table. He had was under the influence of alcohol um, to make matters worse. Um, but I guess the one thing that I need to point out now is that he never intentionally meant to hurt me. So he didn't go, I'm going to absolutely ruin this person's life. It was a big accident really big one to make, but um, he's a human being as well. First day, he doesn't show up to court, which upset me because he never once said sorry. The second day, lots of criminal charges are laid out. The third day, ultimately, he loses his licence. And he broke down in tears in court, walked up to him. I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, mate, are you okay? And he said, no, I'm not okay. And I said, I'm really sorry to hear that you're having a bad day. He said, thank you. Uh, And I said, look, how are you getting home today? He said, I I have no idea. I can't afford a taxi. My livelihood was dependent on me driving. I've obviously lost my licence. I can't get home. And my dad's on the back of my shoulder. He was a police officer for 40 years and he sees the world very differently to what I do. And he said, I could just see him. They're going, Kath, do not do it. And I said, look, we'll give you a lift home. So the man's like, I don't know if that's a good idea. And I th- so I think it is. And I said, it's not about kindness. It's not about forgiveness. It's about closure. I need this chapter of my life to be over so that I can just do whatever it is that I need to do in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years and that I can just put this to bed. So we take him home. It's a 15-minute journey. He gets out of the car. That's fine. And my dad says to me, Catherine, I need to talk to you about that. He said, look, I'm not angry. I'm not disappointed. I'm like, thank God, because no kid wants to hear that of their parents. Maybe I'm just annoyed that you made me do that. I'm like, well, can you talk me through that, Dad? He said, all right, Kath, you're an auntie. What would it feel like to watch one of your nephews or your nieces go through what you just have? And I said, it would really hurt me. And he said, and he's the man that's responsible for that. And not only that, you've had everything else that's happened in your life. And I've had to watch you crawl literally through it emotionally and physically and everything else. And it's insulted me and it's hurt a lot. And I said, Dad, I'll never understand what you've gone through. And I'm really sorry. Can I tell you where I'm coming from, why we did that? So often in life we see hate and we respond to it with more hate and it just creates more hate. And it's not a world that I'm proud to be a part of, if I'm honest. And I guess for me, at a very young age, I saw a quote that the world is changed by your example and not by your opinion. And that really resonated with me. And I was like, well, the ball's in my court now. How am I going to choose to respond to this? Because we're always accountable for our own actions and our own happiness and our destiny, right? We're not bystanders in life. So I thought, okay, kindness has saved my life once before. Why can't it again? So um, feeling quite lost and bewildered with the world, I just set off on a journey. I left my home with nothing but the clothes on my back, no cash, no credit card, no food or water. And my rules for this, I guess, social experiment were that I couldn't rely on the help of family or friends. So it had to be strangers that helped me survive. And it sort of reached news stations around the world and I ended up travelling for two months on the goodwill of people. Travelled to every state in Australia, 10,000 offers to help me and I did it all and I saw it all during that journey. I had a family of refugees, there was 12 in the family, three of them separately reached out to me to offer to help. They didn't know that the other one had done it. I thought I have to go to that family. And for every one micro story that I've shared similarly to today, there'd be thousands out there more like that. And I I realised a lot of things. I learned a lot about perspective and growth and everything else like that. But I also realised that adversity is such a relative experience. So just because my story is so shocking and, you know, there's a lot of hurdles and it's it's an emotional roller coaster, doesn't mean that the person next door who's going through a breakup isn't experiencing something just as significant in life. And it put my life into perspective and it was incredible. And it changed my life. 
I sort of haven't stopped since. I have to stop you, right? I'm quite emotional at the moment because I can't believe. Did he say sorry? He didn't. And that's, again, I guess none of our business. And I want to give you a big cuddle now. <laughs> Where did you find that compassion to actually put your hand on his shoulder and make sure he was okay? And he's devastated at losing his licence. Was he devastated at hurting you and setting your life on such a path? It was a, it was a tough one. He was nearly a hit and run man as well. As he hit me with his car, he didn't see me until I was on his screen. So it unbuckled me from my bike, ended up on the screen. He then broke, smashed the windscreen. I then launched off onto the ground. He nearly drove over me. And I think, again, with all people in life and in any situation, if we can respond with compassion and kindness, I think that's the ultimate form of strength. So for me, what is it that led him to behave that way? Is it experiences as a, as a kid when he was growing up, experiences he's having now? When we're in traffic on the way to work every day and we start beeping at the person in front of us because they haven't gone quick enough or they miss that light or whatever it is, can we understand where they've come from that day and what led them to behave that way? Is it something else underlying that's going on? Look, I'm sure that man never meant to hurt you and accident happen and, you know, that's your philosophical approach, which is beautiful. But to find the forgiveness in the courtroom that day and then do you understand how angry I suspect your dad was at having to be kind to someone that nearly killed his daughter? Yeah. Again, tough, right? For, <laughs> for me, it wasn't so tough. I think it was the right thing to do. And how do I articulate that? For me, you can't argue with compassion and kindness. You really can't. It can never lose. So sometimes people could insult your approach with those notions and those attributes and those values. And he behaved, again, not in a great way by never once apologising to me at all. But that's his business and that's his journey and that's got nothing to do with me. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Extraordinary sequence of events over four years has now created the Kindness Factory and this has taken off. Which has been amazing and that's why I wouldn't change any of my, my life for anything. I now I, I live in LA and I'm working with media companies to develop books and TV series and movies. But hang on, let's roll you back to 2015, okay? The Kindness Factory is up and running. You're finding the website being inundated with random acts of kindness, which would blow you away. Tell me some of the more beautiful stories just in the early days. Yeah, there's a lot. One of my favourites, um, I was actually giving a, a keynote presentation at a function and a woman halfway through it happens because it's some tragedy in the story and it can bring out emotion in people. So sometimes people get up quietly, excuse themselves, have a cry, come back in, and that's just a, a given during the talks. And one woman left the audience, younger lady, and about six weeks later I got a phone call off her. Hi, Kath, you probably won't remember, I was in this talk that you gave, at, I think it was at the ICC. I said, oh, yeah, okay. And she goes, I, I ran out halfway through, this might trigger your memory. I said, oh, yeah, is everything okay? Are you okay? I hope it didn't bring out too many bad things. And she said, no, and of course, I'm actually really grateful that someone ringed to tell you about. I said, what happened? She said, well, I guess it taught me perspective. She said, I um, immediately went to the hospital. I hadn't spoken to my dad in 10 years. 
I knew that he was on dialysis, needed a kidney to survive. So I got tested that day. The next week I donated my kidney and dad and I have a really great relationship. And I was like, how's this happened? Like through me just sharing a story. And f- there's so many out there like that. There's a, a bikey gang member, so had faced jail time, crime, drugs, rock and roll, all that kind of stuff. His son was a really big fan of what we did. His name was Odin, cancer sufferer. He ended up dying tragically at the age of 20 before he died. Said to dad, can you just check them out? check out what they do. I just want you to get involved. I think he was worried about how his dad was going to cope with his death and also, I guess, the trajectory that his life was on. So he did. I got a phone call. His name's Pete. He said, look, my son Odin, I'm not sure if you knew him, but he passed away and his sort of dying wish was to connect me in with the kindness factory. He said, how do I get involved? I said, mate, it's not an exclusive club. You just got to do something for someone else. It's no bigger than that. You don't even have to log it. Just do it. I can guarantee it will make you feel amazing. I get a call of him six months ago, summer month. Kath, it's Pete. Uh, I've done it. My act of kindness. I need to tell you about it. I said, of course, tell me. Well, um, my elderly neighbour has diabetes. She doesn't have many support networks around her or anything else like that. So I took it upon myself to be that person for her. Two times a week, I'll go and check on her, have a cup of tea, do whatever it is that she needs. Great. Mate, I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much. So said, Kath, it doesn't end there. I went to knock on the door one day as a checkup and the fly screen was up, but not the actual door itself. And I just noticed these feet at the base of the door. She'd had a diabetic attack, had been there for almost close to 24 hours unconscious. He broke into the door, called the ambulance, sat with it in the ambulance, held her hand, visited every day until she recovered fully and ultimately saved this woman's life, right, through the one simple notion of taking upon himself to act. They're the stories, not that they end in that such big, because not everyone's going to save a life by doing an act of kindness, right, but you can. And I think that we need to take it upon ourselves every single day to, to take those micro moments simply of smiling at someone because that ultimately could save a life too, right, the energy that you're giving that person through that experience. I think we underestimate the power of it of what connecting with a person can do. I often refer to kindness as it's my own words, but I always sort of say yeah, kindness is the energy that exists between people when they feel seen, heard and valued and when they can give and receive without judgment. And I think that's what we're taking steps towards doing on a day-to-day basis where humans can just connect without intention or judgment or any of these things that get in our way so often in life. Um, the vulnerability, like removing that layer of that We all have time to do it. Even the most time-poor person has time to be kind to another person and it doesn't have to cost a cent. But it's the purest of concepts and yet it is one of the most joyful things to experience. I first came across you in 2016 at the Pride of Australia Awards. The Pride of Australia is really about recognising those in the community who do extraordinary things for no other reason than they do because of who they are. And I couldn't believe your backstory, let alone where it had led you and how much you're now giving back to other people. But that doesn't stop there. Then 2017, you're awarded the Young Australia Medal, the People's Choice of Australia Award in 2017, the Gotcha for Life Ambassador 2019, Australia Day Ambassador 2019 for the uh, Shire Council. Now you're planning on swimming the English Channel. <laughs> and then the last time I spoke to you, you said, look, you know, I'm really busy. I'm, I'm hoping to take this global. You've done that, but organising this podcast, you had to quickly dash up to the Northern Territory because you've set the Indigenous community on fire in the nicest possible way. Tell us about that story. PDHPE teacher by the name of Greg Salento in Darwin had heard me, uh, I think they watched a segment I did on Fox Sports and they said, sir, can we fit this into our curriculum somehow? We want to do acts of kindness this month. Within a month, they'd done over a thousand acts of kindness. And I was like, this is incredible. So I sent a video back going, guys, I'm so inspired. I'm so impressed. Thank you so much. One day I'll come to Darwin and celebrate you. Get another email in response to that about a month later. Kath, we've done cupcake stalls. We've done barbecues. The kids have raised enough money. We think we can cover an airfare. Will you come and do a talk at the school? And I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Keep your money, donate it to the school, I'm coming. 
So I took a bit of a crew with me. I'm developing some curriculum, so kindness curriculum with a major education provider that we're going to announce really soon that hopefully will just change education and the way that we learn and provide safe and nurturing environments. And it's a story for another day. But I took a crew there and we got to celebrate these kids from all walks of life. So they welcomed me in Maori, in Indigenous tongue, in I think it was Taiwanese. Like, And it was such an incredible experience to see these kids who have just gone out into the community Normally what that involves is me going into a school environment in a reactive state, so the kids have lost someone to suicide or it's bullying epidemic or whatever it is. I go in, I do the talk, and then there's acts of kindness as a subsequence. These kids didn't need any of that. They just went, you need me to be kind, I'm going to be kind, and I'm going to show you a celebration of that. Here's the 1,000, I think it was 1,300 logged acts of kindness, which went onto our website. And then when the ultimate step of going, we really want her to come to Darwin and we'll raise the money to pay for the airfare, which was just incredible, right? Like kids are just amazing. So they're the future in my opinion. That's why this education thing is so important to me. Yeah, that school in Darwin was an absolute favourite of mine. We're still in touch to this day. I've connected them with a school that I did a lot of work with in New York. So they're now like a buddy system school where New York is connecting with Darwin in the most incredible way. So the world, I think, needs this and it's understanding that it does as well. And as soon as you take it somewhere, it's like where's the next place we're going to go? And it's been amazing. So it's now a registered non-profit in the US, based out of LA and also in Australia as well. How did you make that leap to the US? How did that happen? Someone's heard about the Kindness Factory and what a beautiful concept it is. But it's also really real. Yeah, it's such a simple concept, right? Like I'm from a a small country town and they go, Kath, what do you do now? And I'm like, oh, it's kindness. Basically, I spread kindness around the world. I'm like, well, that's not going to be successful. And I'm like, why not? And they're like, because you just do it, right? And I'm like, yeah, here you do in a town of 800. But the rest of the world don't, We've lost that along the way somewhere. So I guess I'm just reminding people that we intrinsically want to be good. But yeah, it's a really funny story. About 18 months ago, I got a phone call and I guess the way I earn an income is through speaking. So corporate gigs and all that kind of stuff. So not uncommon phone call to get. But it was an American woman who I thought was based in Australia. Hey, Kath, we've heard you've got an amazing story. Would you come and share it with our people? It's actually in Ojai in California. I said, okay. And I'm like, do you mind me asking what it's for? Yeah, we're called Patel. I'm sure you've heard of us. And I, was, I don't watch my TV or anything else like that. I was like, actually, I haven't. Can you explain it to me? She's like, okay, well, we bring together the world's most powerful and influential people and brands. And I was like, well, are you sure about that? Like, why haven't I heard about this? Like, why has no one ever, ever told me about it? We'll fly you and your assistant, which I didn't have. So became a best friend sort of trip. Uh, business class, you can come, deliver it. You've got eight minutes to share your story. You're going to open the whole event. I thought, okay, how do I condense my story into eight minutes? And I got there and I really didn't do my homework and it's really common of me to not to have done that. And I walked out onto stage, there's 4,000 people, the screens are bigger than my house and I'm two minutes into the eight-minute talk and I look off-centre to the right and it's Barack and Michelle Obama and I look to the left and it's the Dalai Lama, Reese Witherspoon was in the audience and all these people, I'm like, what on a, where am I? How have I not practised more? (laughs) And I'm like, I nearly swore on stage and it was this standing ovation and everyone came up to me at the end and it was really overwhelming and I really didn't know what to do and all this kind of stuff. But all these companies like AT&T and Google were sort of saying, how do we help? This is amazing. Like with the concept that you've built is incredible. I think at that point in time, we had 150,000 acts of kindness and they're like, with the right AI and the platform, we can get a million in a day. Like your goal will be out the window. What's next though? I didn't have any answers at that point in time. I'm like, look, this is a really humble story that just began with me wanting to do or to contribute to the world. So I haven't really thought that out enough and we just got chatting more and more and more. So that's how it sort of launched in the US. 
I guess culturally, kindness is a language that we all have, right? In the States, they're more inclined to share it. So as Australians and probably New Zealand as well, we suffer a little bit from tall poppy syndrome. So we're, I think, naturally more kind people, but we're less inclined to sort of boast about it and say, here's what I did today, which is okay. Like I've only ever logged one act myself. And I guess humility has been something that I've always had. So to be leading this movement, it's a little bit funny, but Americans are more like, you want me to do kindness? Of course, Like, but I'm sharing it with the world, man. So it's now like, I guess I spend equal times between the US and Australia developing up what we're trying to, to do. So the charitable component is less about community. So we provide obviously the platform for people to do good and to celebrate kindness at every chance. And then from a, a charitable standpoint, the donations and the partnerships all basically feed into the education passion that we have. So how do we make kids kinder? How do we teach kindness? How do we make sure that it's paramount in every child's life? The way that I sort of thought about that was I was really privileged as a kid, not not in a, like from a, um, I guess, a money point of view just that I had a really loving environment always some kids don't have that for whatever reason and I had a teacher who always stood out to me as my favorite teacher Mrs Bromhead and she stood out to me not because she cared that I was good at English or maths or science because I wasn't not really intelligent but she cared about how my weekend was am I happy and it made the world of difference and my whole schooling journey was pleasant because of her teachers have the power every single day or the ability to change lives why don't we empower them to create these environments for kids so we're doing a lot of that through online platforming we've just built the 13 attributes of kindness that could be rolled out from k to 12 across the 13 years of schooling and it's been absolutely incredible i don't think anyone in the world's done it before so i guess for me the next generation of leaders obviously starts with children so could you imagine a child who's been built on the foundation of kindness throughout their schooling journey and what they could what that outcome could look like at the end of that schooling career and that's a really exciting process for me. I've got you a gift. We've developed these that more of a social enterprise model, I guess. So they're 52 acts of kindness. They're cards they're called Play Kind Cards and they're designed for corporates and every cent of proceeds goes towards that education piece that we're talking about. They're a little bit cheeky. They've got some really fun language in there, but they're just 52 challenges or acts of kindness that you can do at any given so time. So it's a gift and a challenge in the same breath. I need you to do them as well. <laughs> yeah. For yourself, right? They're designed to get you out of your comfort zone, allow you to grow. Like they'll start as something as small as sort of buying someone a coffee and they could be interrupted in the middle by interrupting a conflict or starting a conversation that you know is going to be tough but it's going to be what the person needs to hear so yeah they're they're great thank you I think I look forward to looking at them but (laughs) the cynic out there may say if the goal is to raise funds as opposed to random acts of kindness how do you marry those two up the fundraising is simply to get into schools. So that's the only reason that we want funds for because it's a hard sell sometimes and there's things that need to be built around that. We provide that through partnerships and sponsorships. You've obviously got some pretty impressive backers in the US. I mean, given the audience you already yep. identified, uh, who are the big names that are supporting you over there? Um, so from a company standpoint, we've got at and I'm also working closely with one of their subsidiaries called Hello Sunshine. So it's a women's empowerment platform led by Reese Witherspoon. So we're doing a lot, of, a lot of stuff with her. We had a bit going on with Condonast last year. I had no idea these, what these brands were, so it was really embarrassing to be at that conference and to be doing those sorts of things. I've done a lot of social campaigning with a, a beauty box called FabFitFun as well, and Google have just sort of come on board. Um, we've got some huge plans for World Kindness Day this year. Goosebumps sort of stuff. It's the 13th of November. It's the anniversary of Jim's passing. I decided to launch the Kindness Factory three years ago, nearly four years ago on that day to remember him. I got a text message on the day, Kath, like, did you do that on purpose? It's World Kindness Day. I didn't even know that was a thing. So it's really goosebumps sort of stuff. So what, there was a World Kindness Day on the 13th of November, which happened to be the day that he passed and you had no idea. Had no idea. No. So I just said, you know what, I'm, I'm a little bit 
I'm not sick of being sad, but I don't want to be sad on that day anymore because it was always just a really torturous time. I thought I'll launch the Kindness Factory in his honour a little bit and this this is him, I guess. It's probably parts him, parts me, so let's celebrate it. So it's now our birthday. Um, it's got, it holds a lot of emotional significance, but we're actually attempting a world record, so the Guinness World Records have got involved this year in Melbourne, which will be amazing. And what's the goal for the day? How many random acts of kindness? So we've got to get over 4,900 and we need to pin them on post-it notes onto a big cork board that'll be in Melbourne at a conference that I'm speaking at um, and we're also going to launch what's going to be called the Kindness Institute on that day as well as try and invite our community of people to get behind these cards and play a game of kindness with us as well. So it'll be a huge day that will be actually one of the longest days in my life I think because I'm going to start it in Sydney, go to Melbourne and then I'm flying to LA that night to extend and be in in LA for a dinner on World Kindness Day as well. So those who are listening today, how can they get involved? What do they need to do? Immediately, the first thing that you can do is go to kindnessfactory.com and log an act of kindness or an act of kindness that you've done for someone or that someone's given you or done for you and have a look through them. They make you feel incredible. A lot of people contact me and they're like, Cass, I don't know if you know, but I just go onto your website morning and night and it makes me feel incredible because I just read what the world's up to and it's amazing. There's other ways you can get involved. Check out the website. It's on there as well. If you want to purchase a pack, you can do that. You can play a game of kindness with us this World Kindness Day on the 30th of November. And otherwise, just just do good. That's that's all we need, I think. You're an extraordinary human being, Kathy. Thank you. Your extraordinary journey and as difficult as, it, as it's been, it's triggered hopefully an avalanche of kindness and who could ask for more? Thanks so much. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Short Black a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.